Welcome to True Crime and Horror, the podcast that delves into the darkest and most chilling stories from the world of crime and horror. Join us as we explore the fascinating and often terrifying world of true crime and horror. From notorious serial killers and unsolved mysteries to spine-tingling ghost stories and haunted houses. Our expert hosts will guide you through the most gripping cases and terrifying tales, providing insight, analysis, and plenty of scares along the way. If you're a fan of true crime and horror, this is the podcast for you. So lock the doors, turn off the lights. For 18-year-old Marina Bolter of Bloomfield, Indiana, New Year's Eve of 2014 was much like any other. It was a night of excitement and revelry among those nearest and dearest to her. It was also a night when the adults of her family might just be too socially lubricated to notice or care if she happened to be indulging in a little tipple herself. So as the afternoon drew to a close, Marina, who had a part-time job working as a grocery store clerk at the IGA grocery store, boisterously clocked out of her shift and began the journey home to get ready for the New Year's party that she had been planning on going to. Needless to say, she was excited to blow off some steam. You see, 2014 had not been an easy year for Marina. During the summer of 2013, Marina had discovered she was pregnant, and after the birth of her child in April of 2014, Marina had to do some growing up, and fast. She got herself the grocery store job, trying to put her wild child days behind her and committed herself to being a responsible, loving mother. But God laughs at well-laid plans and tragedy was about to befall her. In August of 2014, a violent argument erupted at the family home between her older sister and her boyfriend. The argument quickly became physical, one in which household items were thrown around the home and in a horrendous stroke of misfortune, Marina's baby was injured in the melee. Neighbors happened to catch wind of the injury to the infant and swiftly reported the incident to Child Protective Services. A social worker was dispatched to the home, who, with a heavy heart, made the decision to remove the child from the home and place them into foster care. Marina was devastated and vowed to do everything she could to win back her child. But it was not to be for yet more tragedy was to strike Marina and her family, because that New Year's Eve, after she clocked out of work, she would never arrive home. In fact, as people would come to learn, it was as if though she had simply dropped off the face of the earth. One of the first places we might wish to look in order to get answers as to what happened to her is her relationship with a young man by the name of DJ Lockhart, Marina had a rather tempestuous, on-again, off-again love affair with DJ, who was the father of Marina's child. They were young, foolish, and headed in two very different directions in life, but as Marina's mother insisted in the years after her disappearance, they were very much in love. Despite what many have said about DJ possibly being responsible for Marina's disappearance, there are just as many who are, or were, close to the Bolter and Lockhart families that insisted that DJ was only guilty of loving her too much, given that he was devastated beyond belief at her having vanished on New Year's Eve. Yet there is another man in Marina's life who we must consider as a possible suspect, or who at least may have had a hand in facilitating her disappearance. In late 2014, Marina and DJ were not seeing eye to eye at all, and to all outside observers, it seemed they had definitely broken up. 
This was mainly because Marina seemed to be seeing other people, mainly an older man named Toby, who she seemed to be rather secretive over. But she was being secretive about him for good reason. You see, not only was this older man married, but he was actually an old friend of the Bolter family, one that had known Marina's parents ever since she was born. Toby acted as something of a sugar daddy towards Marina, helping her out financially until she was able to afford the rent on her own apartment. However, it's important to note that Marina having her own place was one of the stipulations for regaining custody of her own child. It appears that Toby was less of a serious relationship option and more of a means to an end. But as much as Marina tried to keep the relationship a secret, in a small town like Bloomfield, it's only a matter of time before even the deepest secrets see the light of day. And in the process, Toby's wife, who was also an old friend of the Bolter family, discovered her husband's infidelities. And shockingly, it was actually Marina's own mother who informed her of it. So as it turns out, the New Year's Eve party that Marina was supposedly headed to that night was none other than Toby's. But as she strolled out of work, calling Toby on her cell phone to confirm a few last-minute arrangements, she spotted someone walking towards her across the store's parking lot. According to Toby, Marina's last words to him before she hung up the phone were, Uh-oh, it's DJ. Marina did not call Toby back. In that surprise parking lot encounter, DJ straight up told Marina that he knew where she was planning on going for New Year's Eve, adding that he didn't approve of her relationship with Toby whatsoever. He then pleaded with her to attend a New Year's party with him instead, insisting they should work on repairing their relationship for the sake of their child. Marina replied that it was not the time or place to be having such a discussion, that she had made plans with Toby and she was sticking to them. DJ was furious, but supposedly took the rejection on the chin before offering to give her a ride home so she might get out of the cold. But it seems that Marina actually managed to get a ride home from a regular customer. Whether or not she did this out of pure happenstance or begged to be taken home because she was afraid of DJ is entirely up for speculation. But one thing is abundantly clear. The following day, Marina failed to show up for her scheduled New Year's Day shift at the IGA store. Knowing full well that she would head out to a party after work, Marina's employers were initially unsurprised by her unauthorized absence. There had probably been some drinking involved, and with drinking comes hangovers, and with hangovers comes tardiness. But still, they tried her cell phone to see if she was going to be heading into work at some point, yet there was no answer. IGA management then got in touch with Marina's mom, hoping she might be able to provide some answers on her daughter's whereabouts. But Marina's mom hadn't seen her either, and the news that she had failed to show up for work only succeeded in worrying her. She headed over to Marina's apartment, using her spare key to let herself in. There were no signs of any break-ins or struggles, but Marina's purse, cell phone, and keys were all missing, along with her work uniform. This meant that, in all likelihood, she never made it home from work that evening. Marina's mom immediately reported her missing, and a police investigation began shortly afterward. Obviously, given the fact that she seemed to have disappeared immediately after leaving work, police stated very publicly that they wished to speak to the customer who had apparently driven her home that evening. It took three whole weeks for the man to come forward, but we can understand why he might be nervous. 
In an interview with investigating police, the man claimed to have dropped her off at a pizza place near to her home. The restaurant was closed, but Marina apparently openly stated that she didn't want the man to know where she lived. Although this might seem like an unusual thing to say, when it was put to Marina's mom, she attested that it was just the kind of thing her daughter would say and that to her, it was a totally believable story. This was backed up when the man was made to undergo a polygraph test and pass with flying colors. Despite being one of the main suspects in Marina's disappearance, DJ did all he could to help the family find her, even if it was to no avail. He was said to be absolutely bereft about her disappearance and was never quite the same afterward. Marina's mother spoke highly of the young woman and always insisted that he couldn't have been involved in her vanishing. However, Marina's father and his extended family have perennially viewed the boy with suspicion, openly stating that he had the most to gain from her having disappeared. But the fact remains that we will never truly know if he was responsible, as we will never get a full confession. You see, DJ took to drinking heavily after Marina went missing, getting into more and more trouble with the law and the local populace. So much so, that he got into a violent altercation on February 12, 2015, one which ended in him being stabbed to death by the man he had gotten in a fight with. And then there's Toby, Marina's old lover who had given her thousands of dollars to try to help her get her life together. He was one of the last people Marina spoke with on the evening of her disappearance, and one might think that he would cooperate fully with the investigation into her whereabouts. But by all accounts, Toby acted very suspiciously in the months that followed. He apparently stopped talking to Marina's mother altogether, and only involved himself with Marina's father, almost aggressively asserting that DJ was to blame for her disappearance. However, there is another person of interest in this case who we can simply not ignore as a suspect, a man by the name of Vernon Gale Briner. Vernon was a convicted murderer who had been previously sent to prison for the murder of a 19-year-old girl and had only been released from the penitentiary in 2012. As it turns out, Vernon had a solid alibi for his whereabouts at the time, with an employer testifying that he was at work at the time. Vernon also passed a polygraph test in which he was straight up asked if he had done anything to Marina, with the results indicating that he was telling the truth when he said he had nothing to do with her going missing. To this day, there have been no significant clues as to what happened to Marina Bolter. No dead bodies had ever been found that could have matched up to her DNA or description. No one outside of her small hometown has ever seen anything matching her description either. For all intents and purposes, it is as if she just vanished from the face of the earth. It's a terrifying prospect that, even in the digital age, with man's ability to track and trace using the plethora of electronic devices we employ in our daily lives, that a girl as well-known and well-loved as Marina could simply disappear, never to be seen again. There were many suspects in her case, many people who could have snatched her up and disposed of her in a way that no one would ever find her. But only one man is guilty. Only one person really knows what happened to her and how her final moments on this earth played out. And to our knowledge, that man is still walking the streets of the United States, knowing he committed perhaps the worst crime imaginable and knowing that no one can touch him for it.
The Melbourne suburb of Packingham is one of the wealthiest areas in all of Australia. The area is home to several large mansions that house some of Melbourne's most successful business people, boasting sprawling estates with luxury amenities such as swimming pools, boating lakes, and even small-scale golf courses. It's one of these mansions that 45-year-old Michael Griffey called home. He lived with estranged wife Diane along with children that Michael hardly saw due to his busy work schedule. He would often spend long periods of time living in an apartment he owned in Melbourne itself, using it as a kind of base of operations for his many business ventures, including the parent company DNM Plaster Transport. On December 31st of 2004, Diane and the children were hosting a huge party to celebrate the coming of the new year. Scores of guests swanned around the grounds of their stunning estate, eating canapes, drinking champagne, and looking back over a year that had brought many of them great financial success. But Michael himself was nowhere to be found. When asked, Diane replied that he was home but that she had not seen him and was probably milling around somewhere in a drunken haze, socializing with business associates or eyeing up the young cocktail waitresses that floated around with silver trays laden with luxury food and drink. But the reality was something far more disturbing, because although Michael was indeed on the property, just not in the state his loved ones imagined him to be, because on the evening of January 2nd, 2005, his wife Diane, along with their 17-year-old daughter Cassandra, walked into one of the second-floor office spaces to find Michael lying dead in a pool of his own blood. The mansion was vast, with so many rooms that Michael was found to have been dead for days, simply lying in a room that none of the family had been in for quite some time. The investigating coroner determined through tissue analysis that Michael had been bludgeoned to death at around 3 p.m. on December 29th. Whoever had murdered him had then wrapped his bloodied corpse in a striped bedsheet before attempting to hide it under a tarp. There were three large and seemingly fatal wounds on his head and one obvious defensive injury to his wrist, indicating that he had attempted to fight off his attacker before being overpowered and killed with a blunt object. Police discovered that Michael's wallet and cell phone had been stolen from the property and that a thousand Australian dollars had been removed from a safe that only three people, one of which was Michael, had the combination to. They also found that two pages had been torn from a journal that his family said had a meticulous record of his movements and business dealings. Given that Diane was the beneficiary of both of Michael's life insurance policies, which were valued at almost two million dollars, she was one of the first people to be considered as a suspect. Police discovered that not only had she written bad checks in the time before he was killed, but that in the short time before his death, Michael had complained to his friends that his wife was mishandling money and that he could use this fact to gain the upper hand when it came to dividing up the family finances in the event of a divorce. It was also discovered that Michael was having multiple affairs and financially supporting other women, and that the main reason he was staying in central Melbourne so much was not because of business dealings, but because it afforded him time to indulge in his extramarital affairs. However, he had not done a very good job of keeping this a secret from Diane, and text message exchanges made this very evident indeed. However, Diane's lawyer prevented her from commenting on how this made her feel, and this, along with the other evidence of her financial misdealing, 
made her the number one suspect in her husband's murder. She was arrested in 2007 and preliminary hearings began shortly after. Yet the case was not to be a simple one by any stretch of the imagination. Not only was there simply not enough evidence to really charge Diana with Michael's murder, but a number of other twists and turns in the case meant that pinning down a definitive suspect became almost impossible. Bizarrely, during the preliminary hearings of the case against Diane, her and Michael's daughter Cassandra, the very same one who had found his body on that fateful day in January of 2005, actually attempted to confess to his murder. Despite her insistence that it was she that beat her father bloody in the days after Christmas before attempting to hide his body with a sheet, police noticed a series of inconsistencies in her story and dismissed it as a false attempt to implicate herself in something she had nothing to do with. But the question would cast a shadow on the entire affair for the duration of the investigation. Just why exactly would Cassandra want police to believe that she was the murderer? Police also investigated Michael's son, Kenny, who was something of a playboy, living a fast lifestyle with fast cars and even faster women. There was every reason to believe that he too needed money, but again there was very little evidence to suggest that he had even had it in him to plot the murder of his own father, let alone go through with it. Police managed to secure an interview with one of Michael's mistresses, a woman by the name of Jillian Gold, who had apparently been engaged in an affair with Michael for the better part of five years. She knew that she was not the only woman whom Michael had been seeing, but since he had essentially funded her lifestyle and was not written to his will, there was absolutely no reason to believe that she was the one who had killed him. However, there was a chance that since Michael was known to partake in sugar daddy style relationships, that breaking it off with one of his so-called sugar babies had resulted in an argument, an argument that may have resulted in a kind of revenge killing. But since Jillian was completely ignorant of these other women's identities, she couldn't point police in their direction, and the investigation into being an affair-related murder floundered. Police then got in touch with Katrina Fitzpatrick, Michael's sister, who told the police of a rather worrying encounter she shared with her brother in the time before her brother's death. Around a month before he was found dead, Michael got in touch with Katrina in an attempt to arrange a meet-up with her. She had dithered over a time and place citing her busy work schedule, but Michael had almost violently insisted that they meet as soon as possible. They met in a high-end cafe in downtown Melbourne, and from the get-go, Katrina noticed that Michael appeared to be acting extremely shadily. She had apparently tried to confront him on the reason for his off behavior several times, but was rebuffed on each occasion, with Michael insisting on reminiscing about happier times, including their childhood together. By the end of the conversation, Katrina, admitting to be extremely worried for her brother's mental state, impressed him for one final time about the reason for their meeting. Michael barely said another word, instead opting to present her with an expensive piece of jewelry, beginning to cry as he told her he loved her. Michael then departed the meeting, and Katrina never saw him alive again. There happens to be another interesting aspect to this case, albeit one we might struggle to fit into the bigger picture. In the year 2008, almost four years after Michael's murder, it was discovered that his plaster transport company was facing dire financial difficulties in the run-up to his killing. Michael owed over a million dollars in taxes to the Australian government, as well as owing a hundred thousand dollars in loans to other creditors. 
A lot of this loan money could be accounted for, but some of it could not, and it's possible that Michael owed money to some people that it might be extremely dangerous to owe money to, the kind of people that, if it appeared that the debt might not be repaid, might simply have Michael killed as a warning to others. So the question remains, just who killed Michael Griffey, and what exactly were their motives? There was no doubt that Michael seemed to know he was in danger. The teary encounter with his sister is a testament to that. There's also the possibility that he believed or knew that he wasn't safe in his own home, which is why he stayed so often in the downtown Melbourne apartment. The fact that he seems to have been murdered in his own home is all the evidence we require to back this theory up. There's every chance that Michael was murdered as a result of his debts. But the fact that his daughter tried to confess to his murder throws a huge wrench into the works of such a theory. She was obviously trying to cover for him, but whether or not she was trying to cover for her mother or her brother is another question entirely. I think we can all agree that this is frankly terrifying, that someone's own family might well be involved in their murder, and that those that are supposed to love and cherish us are just as capable of snuffing out our lives in the name of greed or malice. Whether or not answers will finally come out regarding his death is anyone's guess, but for the time being, Michael's death will remain yet another unsolved mystery, and his killer is free to walk the streets. Now, this happened just last night, and I'm still a little shaken up over it. I'll try to retell the story exactly as it happened, but the occurrence may have fogged my memory a bit. My name is Jason. I'm a 17-year-old male, and I work second shift at a local Walmart in a small central city. At about 10 p.m. after my work period was over, I was driving home when I decided to stop for gas. In retrospect, it was really stupid to stop at all. The gas station was poorly lit and it was completely vacant of other customers, but I knew the shady areas of my town and this was not usually one of them. I pulled up to the pump, expecting nothing less than just a quick in and out visit to the station and began fueling my car. I waited for about a minute or so until I heard that prompting click of the gas nozzle. Just as I closed my fuel cap, I grabbed my receipt and began making my way to my driver's side door. An unsettling looking woman pulled up right beside me, regardless of all the other surrounding pumps that she could have gone to. I didn't think too much of it though, given that I was just leaving anyway, and just continued on to open my car door. But then I hear her shout something, Hey boy, come here, while then motioning me over with her bony tattered fingers. Me being the friendly person that I am, decided to engage in conversation with her, despite my immense feeling of uneasiness. I conferred back, then saying, Uh, yes miss? How can I help you? I now realized that I should have put more consideration into my words, as she then said, Yeah, I need you to come over here and pump my gas for me, which I thought to be a bit odd considering she looked perfectly capable and she didn't even give me a reason as to why she couldn't do it herself. But stupidly, I decided to give her the benefit of the doubt. I started walking over to her vehicle when I then picked up on a bit of a red flag. She had already turned her car off as if it was ready to be filled up, except that her tank lid wasn't on that side of the car. Once again, 
I just gave her the benefit of the doubt and then thought, well, maybe she just forgot which side it was on and continued round to the pump nearing her car and then I saw it. The second big red flag just on the other side of her car was a light that I could vaguely see through her window, hence illuminating everything within the back seat of the car. Even through the densely tinted window of her sliding van door, I could vaguely see the silhouette of at least two grown men staring right at me. When she noticed I had saw them, her entire demeanor completely changed. Her face looked cold as snow and then turned into an angry, frustrated look. And that was it for me. There were too many bells that were going off in my head telling me to get the hell out of there. Just as I began to back up towards my car, she started screaming at me, demanding me to come back. I then bolted to my driver's side door, which was luckily left unlocked, turned on my engine, and then threw it into drive. I booked the hell out of that gas station without a second thought. Luckily, they didn't appear to follow me as I got onto the more far populated interstate. It also didn't occur to me to contact the police at the time since I was so in shock. I just really hoped they didn't find another victim because of me not informing the proper authorities about it. It's a really scary world out there, so if you ever have an uneasy feeling in your gut like that, trust it. To both those creepy men and that woman, I just pray and hope I never see you guys again. Back during summer breaks when I was a kid, I was pretty much glued to my mom during the daytime. Everywhere she went, I went too, as I guess she just didn't trust me to stay home alone. I can't blame her. I was definitely a little menace when my age was still in single digits. But actually, maybe she should have left me home alone because taking me everywhere with her resulted in the single scariest moment of my childhood. So, one day, we head out on a grocery run real early in the morning and since I was still half asleep, I pretty much refused to get out of the car. Since she was only planning on being a couple of minutes at the most, she agreed then scurried off into the store as I closed my eyes and decided to take a nap. Oh, an important point, I climbed into the back seat to do this, then cuddled up under the blanket that my mom kept back there. Keep this in mind for what comes next. The next thing I know, I hear the car door opening again, so I open my eyes thinking, wow, that was fast. And that's when I see that the person who just sat down in the driver's seat is not my mom. It's some dude with a shaven head, and I still remember all the scabs on the back of his head as he started doing something under the dash, something which I now know was hot wiring or whatever you want to call it. I remember being so scared that all I could do was watch, thinking, I don't know you. What in God's name are you doing my mom's car? I didn't expect him to start it because, even though I was incredibly young, I knew that he had to have those special keys to make the car move. But then out of nowhere, the engine starts, after which the guy shuts the door, starts driving my mom's car out of the parking lot. Only then did I start to scream, because it hit me that I might never actually see my mom again. This random guy wasn't just stealing my mom's car, he was stealing me too. The moment the screams left my mouth, the guy slammed the brakes so hard that it almost threw me off the back seats. He spins around and I never forget how this guy had actual facial tattoos. These are scary enough to see on another adult, but since I was only like a kid at the time, I just figured this dude was a straight up demon. He looks at me and then just screams, Get out of the car, kid! 
I didn't even have to be told twice. Even though I was still in my PJs, I practically jumped out of the car, still bawling, and just ran towards the grocery store as the car drove off. I can only imagine how horrible it must have been for my mom to have her kid come sprinting into the store in floods of tears, screaming, Mom, Mom, someone just tried to take me away, then having to piece together all the info to realize that she almost lost her only son. These days, I totally take blame for the whole thing. I shouldn't have been such a lazy little brat, and the whole thing would just be a non-event to me. It'd be the day our car vanished, not the day I almost accidentally got kidnapped. I always tell my mom not to feel guilty about it, as basically all is well that ends well, right? But still, the whole thing definitely tops the list of my most frightening childhood memories. On Christmas Eve of 2015, I was partying on the rooftop of a high-rise building in New York City. There was a small, I guess you could call it platform area, where chairs and tables had been set up, and all around the rail someone had hung up red and green Christmas lights. There was about six of us on the platform drinking and smoking, and taking in the view of the city. But with the wind, it was just too cold to stay out there for long. I was just visiting the city with friends, and once I had my fill of the cold, I went back inside and mingled with the people who worked in the office. After another 45 minutes or so, I went back outside to have a cigarette, and found myself alone on the platform. I walked to the edge and leaned out over the side, the wind nearly ripping the cigarette out from between my fingers. I turned around and put my elbows on the railing, and looked up at the building behind me. It had one of those tall spires with a flashing red light on the top to alert low-flying planes. As I looked at it, I paused, and my cigarette fell from my lips. Something was on the spire. Something alive. Distracted before by the wind and the faint sounds of traffic below, I hadn't heard the sound of something hard tapping against metal. The red glow of the tower light flashed on and off, and I could faintly make out something wrapped around like a snake moving down the spire and the shine of light reflecting off its body as the scarlet hue illuminated it for a few seconds at a time. I stood stunned, and slowly went from my phone to take a video. My body was moving slowly, as if instinct was telling me any sudden movements would be a mistake. I dug through the pockets in my purse blindly, looking for my phone, not taking my eyes off the thing. It was definitely moving, sliding down the pole like a single droplet of water moving down an icicle. I remember thinking, should I be screaming? As soon as my hand found my cell phone, the thing spread two massive bat-like wings. For context, there was a standard-sized American flag hanging vertically on the landing just beneath the spire, where I presumed maintenance people would stand. Each wing was easily twice the size of the flag. I dropped my purse and phone and sprinted back inside the office, catching my foot and falling flat on my face upon the carpet. I felt a whoosh of cold air behind me that hit me hard like a wave on the beach. I started wailing and choking on my own breath and was convinced at any moment I would hear alarms and would see spotlights combing the city. I mean, I couldn't have been the only one to have seen it. This was New York City, one of the most densely populated areas in the country. I screamed for someone to call the cops and started frantically changing the channels on the TV, convinced that Anderson Cooper or somebody was going to make a breaking announcement about some creature flying through the skies above New York, but there was nothing. 
A dozen people tried to calm me down, and I sobbed and told them that there had been something outside. Something that had wings. I went into the bathroom and vomited, not because I was worried about the creature, but because everything else happening around me seemed so normal, and no one was reacting. Someone ended up calling an ambulance for me, and the attendants checked me out in the hallway, but I was fine. I wasn't even close to being drunk. I made quite a scene at that party, and I have not been invited back. They call me the Dragon Chick, and no one believes my story. My therapist told me that I should write all this down to reflect upon it, and try to make sense of it. This is the fifth time I have, and nothing is becoming any clearer. Please, someone out there, tell me you've seen it too. I need to know that I'm not crazy. Hey, 